verses uh, 1 through 7, chapter 3. Esther 3, 1 through 7, Haman's conspiracy against the Jews. And uh, Okay, we're all over the place, aren't we? Okay, we're in chapter 3, like I say. Uh, here's our little outline. Uh, Haman's plot against the Jews is uh, the theme of the chapter there. Esther is an interesting book, as we have noted. Uh, Mickey, would you mind grabbing that side door for me? Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Uh, Martin Luther said this. Luther was such an interesting guy. He was like a bull in a china closet sometimes. And uh, he, he was very opinionated about stuff that you maybe want to tread a little light on. Uh, he said this about the, the book of Esther. He said, I am so great an enemy to the book of Esther that I wish it had not come to us at all, for it has too many heathen unnaturalities. <laughs> Boy, that's a pretty strong statement. Uh, you know, you can understand some of what he's saying here, but I, I, I definitely don't. There's a lot of positive things in here that I really want to uh, take away from it. Although many Bible teachers make Mordecai and Esther out to be great heroes of the faith, that is questionable. Uh, some go the other way and claim they weren't really saved at all. Uh, my mentor was Dr. John Whitcomb. I don't think he thinks either one of these people are probably regenerate. I'm not willing to go that far. But uh, some really wonder and say, hey, the way they were living, I don't think they were saved. Perhaps the truth lies somewhere in between. They may or may not have been believers, but they certainly were compromised, that's for sure. Nehemiah's prayer in, in Nehemiah chapter 1, 5 through 11, gives a good indication of the spiritual uh, lethargy among the Jews who remained in exile in Persia. He's speaking from that perspective. And notice what uh, he says, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 7, We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments. The statutes, nor the ordinances, which you have commanded your servant Moses. I think it's kind of a blanket statement in terms of the sinfulness of the people that remained uh, in exile uh, during those days. Well, this uh, story of Esther it takes place in about 483 to 473 B.C. in Persia. And again, many of the Jews remained in the land of Persia after the time of the Babylonian captivity, even though the Persian king Cyrus had made an edict that they should go home. In effect, he told them, go back home to your homeland in 538 B.C. The powerful king Ahasuerus, who was the king over Persia in these days, in the context of our, stu uh, our study uh, of the book, had deposed his number one queen wife named Vashti. Well, sometime later, a replacement was found in the person of Esther, who happened to be a Jewish girl. But she had kept it a secret in keeping with her cousin Mordecai's charge. He had brought her up. He had raised her uh, to be obedient. And so she was. He said, don't let it out that, you're, that we're Jewish, that you're a Jew, that I'm a Jew. Don't let anybody know. So she hadn't. Well, we pick up the, the narrative now in chapter 3 and verse 1. <clears throat> After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, uh, the Agite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. So it's about four years after Esther had become queen. 
And at this time, the king, King Ahasuerus, promoted Haman. And note the strong emphasis here uh, in verse 1. He promoted, advanced him, set his seat above all the princes who were with him. I mean, he really exalted this guy. Really what this meant is he now had the second highest position in the kingdom, right under the king uh, himself. Uh, he set his seat above all the princes who were with him. He's like right under the king himself. And note it says here that he was an agite. A gagite. Uh, now scholars debate what this means. There's two different camps of thinking here. It could mean that he was a descendant of Agag, the king of Amalek, uh, the Amalekites, uh, whom, as you recall, in 1 Samuel, refused to kill Agag. But others claim it means that he was from a Persian area called Agag, claiming it unlikely, quote, unlikely, uh, that a high-ranking Persian official would be related to Agag from 500 years previous history. But I would note that when human intellect starts saying unlikely, it may very well be likely with God. Uh, I really think, personally, the storyline argues more for him being a descendant of King Agag. For one thing, it further qualifies him as being the son of Hamadatha, uh, which would indicate we are talking about heritage. Admittedly, it's not definitive, but I think it probable that what we have in this story reflects the ongoing tension and conflict between Haman's ancestors and the Jewish ancestors of Mordecai. And you'll see why I think this as we go through the text. You see, when the Jews uh, came out of Egypt, it was the Amalekites who attacked Israel as seen in Exodus 17 8 through 16. And we read there uh, in Exodus 17, verse 16. For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from this generation to generation. So, boy, bad news for the Amalekites, uh, of which uh, King Agag was the king uh, later, as we will note. Well, God was very serious about this, and he gives more detail through Moses. Again, it's brought up in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. How he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks. All the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Boy, these, these Amalekites, they were vicious. Picking on the weakest from the rear. So God says, therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Boy, this is a pretty solemn thing God's saying. This was terrible what they did to you as my people. And I would really emphasize here, and did not fear God. They did this because they had no reverence for God. They had no respect for God, for the God of Israel whatsoever. So, fast forward from the time of Moses, uh, when, he's, or, uh, when this is being written, as uh, you know, the children of Israel came out of Egypt, uh, about 500 years later, God then told Saul, the first king of Israel, to go and wipe out the Amalekites. And he was serious. He hadn't forgot, 
500 years, you say, well, I think enough time's lapsed. There's no problem. We'll just all be friends. Nope. God hadn't forgotten. And he expected that his people hadn't either. Remember what he said back in Deuteronomy? You shall not forget. Well, Saul did seem to kind of forget. And he only did a partial job sparing the king of the Amalekites, who was called Agag, whom Samuel, Samuel then hacked to pieces. For Samuel 15. Some of the Amalekites survived, however, and continued on. They continued to exist. And very possibly, Haman was a descendant of this King Agag, the Amalekite king. And so he very probably knew of the, you know, we're talking 1,000 years of bad blood between these two people groups. He probably knew this bad blood history between his people and the Jews, and Mordecai undoubtedly would have known it. So here they were, 500 years after King Agag and the whole situation with King Saul back there. And in this context, 500 years later, uh, the pagan king Ahasuerus rules over the Persian Empire and now has elevated Haman up to the highest position in the kingdom right under himself. And so this the whole context now comes to the fore, this bad blood context between uh, uh, the Amalekites, King Agag back here, and uh, the Jewish people. Uh, Mordecai rarely representing them. So verse 2, And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. All the king's servants in this context of the royal court, they bowed, they paid homage to Haman, which, by the way, is a good idea if the king gives the command to do it. And he had. Notice, for so the king had commanded. That's a big, that's a big thing here. But Mordecai, he had the gall to refuse. He didn't care if the king commanded or not. He's not doing it. He would not bow or pay homage. Now, some claim that the motive for Mordecai's refusal to bow was because it was tantamount to worship and therefore in conflict with Exodus 20, verse 5, etc., where God indicates that his people in worship are not to bow before any other. Well, people taking this view claim that the words bow and pay homage when used together often indicate worship. And that is possible. There are places that is found to be true. But there are some problems with that view. Number one is that Mordecai up to this point did not seem to have great scruples regarding the law. Uh, he seemingly overlooked lots of passages related to immorality, the marriage of Esther to this pagan king, uh, the dietary restrictions of the law that Daniel was very conscientious about, etc., 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 so are we now to think that all of a sudden, Mordecai now has great convictions regarding the letter of the law? That seems a little questionable. Uh, second, the Jews historically had no problem bowing in respect before authoritative figures. As they made a clear distinction between this and worship. For example, when Joseph the Hebrew was made second in command in the land of Egypt, they cried, bow the knee before him. Genesis 41, 43. No problem. 
It was not considered sacrilegious. And there's nothing in the text here that really indicates this was worship. Rather, it had to do with Haman's newly exalted position of honor and prestige that was now paid to him as second in the kingdom. So I take it the emphasis on Haman being an Agite in combination with bowing down to him and paying homage was just too much for Mordecai to handle. Knowing the history of the Amalekites, and especially one related to Agag, uh, is too much for him. He knew, probably, he should have known anyway, that God had called for them to be blotted out as a people. He couldn't do it. He just could not pay homage or bow down to such a fellow uh, who represented this people group who were the perennial enemies of his people. So I, I would agree with the NIV study Bible note here, which says, only the long-standing enmity between the Jews and the Amalekites accounts for both Mordecai's refusal and for Haman's intent to destroy all the Jews. I think there's a lot of history that goes into these guys and their thinking. Verse 3. Then the king's servants who were with the, within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Everybody was talking about this behind the scenes. Everyone else was bowing and making Haman out to be this great person. Everyone except Mordecai. So they asked him about it. And in particular, notice what they made the issue. Uh, why do you transgress the king's command? That's a big deal. Truly, that is a big deal in this context. It's one thing not to bow to Haman, but to do it in disobedience to the king's command. Now that puts it on a whole nother level. You know what that does? That puts your life in jeopardy. And if word gets back to the king that you are openly defying his command, you're probably not only going to lose your job within the king's gate, you're probably going to lose your life. This was no small stand. Verse 4, now it happened when they spoke to him daily that he would not listen to them. And they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, which is kind of an interesting little quip there. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. Now he had told Esther, don't, don't tell, don't tell, don't tell. Now he tells them, I'm not bowing because I'm a Jew. Mordecai's peers pressured and pestered him every day, daily, day in and day out. And, you know, when everyone's doing something, it puts real pressure on the, the one person or the person who's not wanting to do it. Peer pressure is a very powerful thing. I read this. It's a true story. In an experiment designed to test the power of group pressure to enforce conformity, groups of nine students sat in assigned seats. All were shown cards with a single line on the left side and three lines on the right side. They were to determine which line on the right was equal in length to the single line on the left. The first eight students had been told ahead of time to select a line that was clearly wrong. Would the ninth student contradict the group and go along with the right choice or not? Amazingly, very often, uh, very often in this particular study, 40% of the time, even though it was clearly wrong, the student would vote with the majority, even though they were making an obvious wrong choice. Such is the power of peer pressure. It really is a powerful thing. So whatever the motives, I, you really got to give Mordecai a little bit of credit for some internal fortitude here. I mean, 
the, he's not backing down. He wasn't bending no matter the pressure. There was serious resolve here. I'd love to think it was because of spiritual convictions. I'm, I'm, I think it was more a little bit of Jewish pride. I take it Mordecai would rather die than bow before Haman. Finally, he told them it was because he was a Jew. And notice he didn't say it's because of my Jewish scruples. My Jewish religious principles. He just said, it's because I'm a Jew. And we Jews and the Amalekites go way back. A thousand years here. In fact, our God told to wipe them out, not bow before them. That's the kind of mindset I think we got going here. Again, you could argue it was because of his Jewish scruples. Informed by the law. But I tend to think it was because of the bad blood history that's in view. I tend to think that is the case. Again, I don't want to be totally dogmatic, but I, I lean that way pretty strong. So these fellow servants decided to really test Mordecai's Jewish principles. To see if he would really stand up under pressure. Okay, how big, how big a deal is this to you being a Jew? Are you really going to stand if the pressure comes? So they informed Haman that one of them was not bowing. And verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with wrath. He was exceedingly angry, filled with wrath. You know what this is? This is pure ego on display. He was filled with wrath simply because he was not given the recognition that he wanted. And you know, wrath and ego often go together. Not always necessarily, but often they do. So notice, he's just raging mad. Verse 6, But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people, of the people of Mordecai. That's what's really getting his goat here. Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. The people of Mordecai, twice in this verse. The people of Mordecai, the people of Mordecai. He's not only got a problem with Mordecai, he's got a problem with the whole people of Mordecai. Just hearing about it. Nobody else had done anything to him that we know of, but Mordecai. But Mordecai represents this whole people group. That's his problem. Now, to disdain something is to treat it with contempt or scorn. And to Haman, this was a bigger deal than just Mordecai. It was all about the whole people group that Mordecai belonged to. This whole narrative is bigger than just a couple of individuals. It has whole people groups in view. Namely, the Amalekites and the Jews. Now, Mordecai had told his peers that he was a Jew, and they relayed this to Haman. And his reaction would indicate he had some knowledge of the Jewish people, and he hated them. He didn't say, well, I've got to do a little research on this, see what this guy's all about. He knew. He saw Mordecai, he saw in Mordecai what he believed was indicative of the Jewish mindset in general. So in Haman's mind, it was too small a thing to just go after Mordecai. He wanted all the Jews dead. Every last one of them. Thus, we really see the spirit of anti-Semitism that drove Hitler clearly uh, back in the day with the Holocaust. 
Now, one can clearly see Satan at work in the shadows here. John Whitcomb says, It is perfectly clear, then, that the titanic death struggle of the book of Esther can, uh, simply cannot be understood apart from the satanic purposes toward Israel, which the general context of Scripture reveals. Well, instead of merely putting Mordecai to death, which probably would have been relatively easy to do since he plainly defied the king's command in front of all the king's cabinet, instead of merely going after Mordecai, Haman plots to seek the death of all the Jews in the whole empire. That's really a big, that's a big vision. It's a big empire. Remember 127 provinces? Realized the kingdom was extensive and took in not only these Jews in exile, but also those who had returned to the homeland, to the promised land, which was also under the rule of Persia at this time. See that, that the size of this kingdom? But note here, uh, it, it really took in the whole of the promised land here as well. If you're going to kill all the Jews, yeah, you're not only going to kill them here, well, you know, close to where... Uh, Mordecai's living, but you know, and not only throughout the, the whole rest of the kingdom here and here, but also in the Holy Land. In other words, he's looking to totally wipe out the Jewish people as an entire race. That's the goal here. He says Hitler was the first one. No, he wasn't. Haman beat him to the punch. That's where he was. Just like Hitler, Haman was plotting to kill. As many Jews as possible. All of them, in effect. His ego was so big that for the insult of one Jewish man, he wanted to kill off the whole Jewish race. Again, remember the, blood, the bad blood history. The 1,000 year bad blood history here. Haman was full of hate. And hate is a killer. And when that is addressed to God's chosen people, it's a major problem because it really demonstrates rebellion against uh, Israel's God, who alone is the one true God. A massive execution of all the Jews would have killed off God's program and his covenant promises to the patriarchs. That's why John Whitcomb says behind the scenes here, there's clearly satanic activity. Such would thwart the program of God, but that is not possible uh, note a few scriptures to that end. Job 42.2 I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. That's a good thing to know. God is still God. He's always God. Uh, Psalm 115.3 But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Daniel 4.35 Nebuchadnezzar humbled says All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? You know, nobody can go to God and say, you know, God, we're going to hold you accountable. We, we, we don't think this is quite right what you're doing. Uh, who can say, what have you done? Plainly said, God is unstoppable and unaccountable. You know, when you're God, you can do whatever you want to do. And no one can stop you. You know what I say to that? Thankfully, he's a good God. And his character is perfectly consistent with his holiness, love, truth, faithfulness, and grace. You know what I'm rejoicing in tonight? I'm rejoicing in the fact that God is exactly who he is. 
I have no zero problems with God. I always start with the presupposition God is right in whatever he says. Even if I don't understand, at the end of the day, I'm just, God is right. <laughs> no matter what that position is, even if I don't like it, uh, I'm, I'm going to grow to like it <laughs> because it's of God. Well, notice verse 7. Here's how the plan is unfolding. He's got this idea, this vision. I'm going to wipe out all the Jews. Mordecai, I'm going to get you. I'm not only going to get you, I'm going to, I'm going to have my way with all of your people. It's kind of interesting, the irony here. God said, wipe them out. Blot them out. And Haman says, I'm going to blot the Jews out. Who do you think is going to win this battle? Uh, God or the Amalekites? Represented here by Haman here. Well, the showdown is there. Verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast purr. That is the lot. Before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So this happened... This little process they're going through to try to figure out when we're going to start carrying out this massive slaughter of the Jews. Uh, It happened on the first month of the 12th year of Ahasuerus, which would have been about 474 B.C. Esther became queen in in the king's seventh year. So it's about four or five years later. Four or five years had gone by since she became queen. In this 12th year... They cast per, which is to say the lot, before Haman to determine the exact time they should begin to carry out the plan to execute the Jews. Now Haman, if you study this, Haman and the Persian people generally were very superstitious people. And scholars point out that the Persian religious system generally emphasized fate and chance. So it appeared that Haman here was allowing fate to determine the date. I'm not a poet. But he was allowing fate to determine the date when this murderous plan would be carried out. The roll of the dice, so to speak, the casting of the lot, would determine the minds of the gods. And as they did so, the lot fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. They're doing this in the first month, and the lot falls on the twelfth month. Whose advantage do you think that might be to? Well, the quicker the better if you're Haman. But the lot falls on the twelfth month. For crying out loud, this is very lucky for the Jews. No, it's not luck. The fact that the lot fell on the twelfth month was the providence of God. This could not have been more favorable for the Jews because it gave time for Haman's plot to be revealed and overcome and for a counter decree to be issued. That all took some time. Now, how how ironic, by the way, that the first month of the Jewish calendar, Nisan, begins the Jewish New Year with the celebration of Passover, which is a memorial of God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. At that very time, here's Haman plotting how he's going to destroy all the Jews. It's been wise for him to maybe take a little study of history, Passover. You know, you've got the creation account in the Old Testament. And then, you know, 
right behind that. I, you know, I don't want to necessarily, you know, categorize it, but boy, one of the huge mega events in the Old Testament was the Exodus. And how God proved himself to be the one true, all-powerful Yahweh God who's in covenant relationship with Israel. You might want to study that before you decide, I'm going to take it upon myself to wipe out the entire Jewish population. Obviously, he didn't study history. He learned, he didn't know anything in terms of this particular history. At least he didn't take it seriously. By the way, Passover is the oldest uh, religious festival in the world today. There is no older religious festival and it goes back appropriately so to that tremendous time where God showed himself powerful on behalf of his people back there. Well, Haman did not realize that it is the God of Israel who controls all things. Are you ready for this? Including the lot that is cast. You know the verse, right? Proverbs sixteen thirty three: the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Boy, that was certainly true here. God providentially determined this favorable casting of the lot. It wasn't just lucky or coincidence. This is the providential hand of God. The word per was an an Assyrian word, meaning lot, referring to something that is cast in order to make a decision. The plural perum is the word used to denote the Jewish feast commemorating the Jewish deliverance from wicked Haman, which is still celebrated today, by the way, every year by the Jews. Providence has a lot to do with timing. God's perfect timing of events that brings about his exacting purposes. No Purim would have meant no Israel, theoretically. And no Israel would mean no Messiah. And no Messiah would mean no Christianity. Clearly, in one fashion or another, God had to intervene. And he did intervene providentially. As seen here, even in the lot that was cast. And there's so many providential things as we move through the book of Esther. The the providential hand of God is undeniable. Warren Wearsby writes, When God isn't permitted to rule... He overrules. And he always accomplishes his purpose. You want to try to wipe out the Jews? Can I be sarcastic? Good luck. Good luck on that. Pardon the king's English, but that ain't never going to happen. God always accomplishes his purposes because he is God. And he often providentially brings about what he has purposed. Well, we'll stop there tonight, continue on next week and finish out the chapter, but uh, let's stop there and have our closing hymn and then I'll close this in prayer.